has it all been a colossal failure that God has gone to such great lengths to do something so abundantly obvious that you could have figured it out without Him going through such pains. If God had created, sustained, trained for a lifetime into adulthood, and then sent a man to you in order to let you know that the light is on in this room, would you suppose that that investment by God to deliver such an obvious message to you was a colossal waste of His time and effort because you are perfectly capable of seeing the obvious, the light for yourself. Well, God did create, sustain, and train a man whom He subsequently sent to do precisely that. To tell the whole world that the light is on. To tell His fellow man about this light for the purpose of all others joining Him in being fully persuaded that the light is indeed on. But instead of concurring with Him about the obvious, His contemporaries proceeded to arrest, imprison, and eventually behead Him for telling them the light is on. The life and ministry of that man is the focus of our sermon text for today. I invite you to John chapter 1. We'll give our attention to verses 6 through 8. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, reading from the New American Standard Translation. What if you believe God was saying this? Listen that way. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to testify about the light. I'd like to lead us in praying Psalm chapter 43 before we barge into this passage. Would you join me at the throne of grace as I help us, through my voice, pray this psalm together. Vindicate us, O God. Plead our case against an ungodly nation. O deliver us from the deceitful and unjust men. For You are the God of our strength. Why have You rejected us? Why do we go mourning because of the oppression of our enemy? Oh, send out Your light and Your truth. Let them lead us. Let them bring us to Your holy hill and to Your dwelling places. Then, we will go to the altar of God. To God, our exceeding joy. 
Upon the lyre we shall praise you, O God, our God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Meet us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Because we're going to be dealing with two men named John today, the writer of the Gospel of John, the evangelist, and the preacher of the Gospel of Jesus, John the Baptist, maybe it would be helpful if from time to time, if I just say John, 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 I also insert the parenthetical, John the writer or John the Baptist. I'll do my best to do that. But what John the writer is doing in verses 6-8 through is laying another massive foundation stone in his overwhelming argument that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the reason he's laying this stone down, which you will either trip over or build your life upon, is so that you would believe in the Lord Jesus and have life in His name. That's what verses 6-8 through eight are about. There will be three points from those verses. I trust that they will be abundantly obvious as we tackle them. Verses 6, 7, and 8. Verse 6, the man God sent. Verse 7, the message He proclaimed. And verse 8, the Messiah you need. The man, the message, the Messiah. First, verse 6, the man God sent. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. That little statement tells us two things about this man. His credentials and his biography. His credentials are, he is a man sent from God. Before we even get the man's name, John the writer wants us to know that John the Baptist was sent from God. A divine commission. A heavenly assignment. So before we even get to his name, let's deal with his credentials. Jesus certainly believed what John the writer had to say about John the Baptist, that he was sent from God. One time, in fact, when Jesus was being challenged by his accusers, the Lord Jesus put them in checkmate. They asked him a question, and as was his custom, he responded with another question. But on this occasion, in Mark chapter 11, when the Lord Jesus was accused by the naysayers, he responded by affirming his confidence that John the Baptist did not concoct his own ministry. He didn't build his own social media platform. God sent him. And Jesus said it this way to those accusers. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Now Jesus clearly believed that John's work was a heavenly sign to the world and that the people he asked understood that Jesus believed that because they had nothing to say in response, and here's why, Mark 11.31. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the people. For everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. So Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do the things that I do. So in verse 6, there came a man sent from God. There's a little wordplay going on in that little phrase. I just want to point out, if you're a Bible marker, so be it. If not, maybe you could just make a mental note. 
The word came in the New American Standard, translated was in the ESV and King James, is the same word that occurs three times in verse 3 about the Lord Jesus. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing was made that was made. That's the same word in verse 6 about John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God. But John's doing something that we ought to pay careful attention to in that play on words, meaning there's an obvious difference between Jesus and John the Baptist. Jesus and John, though designated in that same sense, he was from God, we're told in verse 1 about the Lord Jesus that he's categorically a was. He was in the beginning with God. He has always been God. Verse 3, he created everything, including John the Baptist. And John the Baptist came into existence, verse 3, by the creative genius and activity of the Lord Jesus, but he was a man. There came a man sent from God. Let's just zero on that little phrase of his credentials again, sent from God. This is no doubt John the writer's way of underscoring that John the Baptist is to be received by you right here, right now, as a divine prophet. Just as God raised up the Old Testament prophets as His witness to a rebellious world, so also the writer John's view of the Baptist John's ministry was that John the Baptist came on the stage of human history at such a time, in such a place, with a certain message, because God put him there. And if you turn your back on what he says, it's not John the Baptist you reject. This is the very same way sent from God that God the Holy Spirit speaks about an abundance of prophets in the Old Testament. Let me give you a sampling. Exodus 3, Moses is one whom God says, I will send to you. Isaiah in chapter 6 is designated by the Lord, whom shall I send? Jeremiah, we're told in Jeremiah 1.7, everywhere God said, I send you. John's clearly picking up that language and saying, John the Baptist is that kind of prophet. But I believe there's an even more important connection that John the writer wants us to pick up about John the Baptist in that little phrase, there came a man sent from God. And the reason I think there's a more important connection than just to the Old Testament prophets in John the Baptist's ministry in that phrase, sent from God, is because the way John the writer uses that word sent 53 times in the Gospel of John. 43 plus of which refer to the Lord Jesus. Now put on your listening ears, you've got to do a little bit of thinking. John the writer goes out of his way to squeeze that word, S-E-N-T, into the Gospel of John. He elongates sentences and makes them more complex than saying it the simple, easy, clearest way in order to get this word into his narrative. He indicates, as I mentioned, 43 plus times that Jesus was sent from God. But when referring to Jesus, here's your 
Got to do some thinking moment. When referring to Jesus, 100% of the time John the writer uses the word sent about the Lord Jesus, it is active. When he uses John the writer, the word sent to refer to John the Baptist, it is passive. 1.6 and 3.28. What John the writer, I believe, is doing in this little phrase, sent from God, is saying, like the Savior, who I'm about to tell you 43 times was sent, accepted the Father's prerogative and said yes to the Father's will to voluntarily subordinate Himself to the pleasure of God to rescue sinners through His own Gospel accomplishments, the Lord Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as the only way any person will ever be made right with God. So also, John the Baptist, passive, received God's call and surrendered entirely to the will of God. This man's message was not only from God. His whole life, the man, there came a man sent from God. He put his whole life on the altar. Do you want to know the kind of man God uses? The kind of boy, the kind of girl, the kind of woman God uses? Not spot anointing. Use me here, use me there, let me do it my way in between the brackets. You know the kind of life God dwells among, draws near to, makes His abode with, the high and exalted One, makes His home with those who fully embrace, as John the Baptist did, the will of God for their life. John the Baptist understood that he was living in the overlap of the ages. There came a man sent from God, Before we go to his biography, his name was John. Think about this. John the Baptist understood that he lived in the overlap of the ages. For that reason, the Lord Jesus referred to John the Baptist as more than a prophet. The greatest of all prophets. Jesus said of John the Baptist, how would you like for Jesus to talk this way about you? The greatest born of woman. Why would he say such a thing? Jesus said concerning John the Baptist in Matthew 11, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Jesus goes on to say, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. What a way for Jesus to talk about somebody. You ready for the next sentence? Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus declared in Matthew 11 in the verses that come just three verses later that John the Baptist is, if you understand and are willing to receive it, the New Testament Elijah, who was to come. When Herod the Tetrarch Tetrarch heard about Jesus, Jesus had done many signs and wonders and had proclaimed a message of gospel truth. But Herod the Tetrarch was late to the party. And when that Tetrarch heard of Jesus, 
the first thing he assumed was Matthew 14, 2. John the Baptist must have risen from the dead. When Peter made his great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said that after Jesus asked, well, who do other people say I am? You know what other people were saying about Jesus in Jesus' day? Mark 8, 28, some say you are John the Baptist. John the writer is asserting in verse 6 that we must listen to John the Baptist's message just like all who ever truly honor God know deep in our bones we must listen to the prophets of old. Why is John the Baptist the greatest of all the prophets according to Jesus? I mentioned the overlap of the ages. John the Baptist is the solitary prophet sent from God who closed the Old Covenant era and watched God open the New Covenant era. He lived during the life and times of the Lord Jesus, not long enough to see the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God inaugurated, which one day soon will be fully consummated when that same Lord Jesus returns, who's now seated on His heavenly throne, and rescues His bride forever, and puts an end to all corruption, and establishes a new heaven and new earth in which there is joy everlasting. John the Baptist saw the Lamb of God come. And he got to see with his own physical eyes what every Old Testament prophet longed to see and had prophesied for centuries prior that God indeed kept the promises to send a Savior for sinners just like us. So John is saying, there came a man sent from God. I don't want you to leave that phrase until it messes with you. That's shorthand for if you don't listen to him, you have no hope. John the writer knows firsthand the consequences of listening to a prophet who's sent from God. Don't you know that the man who wrote that sentence had calculated the cost of what he was talking about and calling everybody else under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to calculate the same cost? John the writer points us to John the Baptist right out of the gate because he wants us too to listen to the, this man clearly and count the cost of identifying ourselves with Jesus. Do you remember what happened? I've already said it once. What happened to John the Baptist? For his uncompromising message of repentance? Matthew 14.11, he got his head cut off. By the time John the writer wrote this Gospel around 80 A.D. I'm going to put it all together and kind of that's where I land. 80 A.D. Do you know what happened to the writer's brother? 40 years before he wrote this Gospel? James book of Acts tells us also had his own life snuffed out grabbed out of prison where he had been incarcerated for preaching the gospel only to be drugged before the magistrates to have the capital punishment sentence hung over his head. And James, John's brother, the guy who wrote this book, was also killed for preaching the gospel. So he's telling us about a man 
who had his own head cut off, and the man who wrote the sentence, brother was put to death for believing this man's message. Here at Agrippa the first had James, the writer of the Gospel of John's brother, put to death. And James was the first martyr, it is believed, in the Christian church after the resurrection of Jesus. John, the last martyr, before the Gospel accomplishments of Jesus. There came a man sent from God. That's credentials. So John the writer introduces John the baptizer with that ever-relevant credential, he was sent from God. But then he gives us something about his biography as we round out point one. His name was John. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, begin their gospel, one of them just a little later than the very beginning. But all of them begin their gospel with an emphasis on John the Baptist. All four gospels. Is that striking to you? John, the writer, however, says nothing about John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. And if he says anything about his biological relationship to Jesus, it's only a hint. He certainly doesn't emphasize it. Why would John, the writer, say there came a man sent from God, credentials, his name was John. Why would John, the writer, insert John the Baptist in his prologue? D.A. Carson said it's because many speculate that the evangelist, that's the writer, wrote these words to refute a group of people who contended that John the Baptist was himself the final revelation of God to mankind and that Christians had wrongly elevated Jesus to that status. If you read the New Testament carefully, it seems like there's a cult. I'm not positive about this, but I'm going to tell you why many conclude that there may have been a cult in the New Testament that revered John the Baptist as the Messiah and therefore didn't embrace Jesus as the Messiah. In Acts 19, we're told when Paul the Apostle gets to Ephesus, they had not heard of the Holy Spirit and had only been, quote, baptized into John the Baptist's baptism. In Matthew chapter 9, we're told that some people came to ask Jesus a question about fasting, and the people who came to ask him that question were John the Baptist's disciples. Some thought that Jesus was John the Baptist. I've already emphasized that. We're not sure if that's the case, but what John's doing from the beginning is the Logos is God, John is a man. He's not denigrating John. He's showing that he's the greatest prophet that has ever walked the planet, but he's categorically unlike the Redeemer to whom he pointed. I believe John might be cutting the legs out from underneath, embracing anybody, or to put it in our terms, maybe contemporary, putting anybody on a pedestal next to the Lord Jesus. There came a man sent from God. His name was John. What do we know about his biography? What do we know about this man? He was, as I mentioned, the older relative by six months of the Lord Jesus. His mother was Elizabeth. Mary and Elizabeth were related. In Luke 1, we know that John the Baptist was set apart not as a, an adult, 
to be an ambassador of Christ, but in the womb of his mother Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and called to be the forerunner of the Savior. In Luke 1, 16 and 17, we get the job description of John the Baptist, that he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. What would that look like? And oh, how we need a revival of this in our day. It is He, John the Baptist, who will go as a forerunner before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Do you know one way we will know if true revival ever sweeps Memphis, Tennessee? Dads will love their sons. As mentioned earlier in the earthly life of John the Baptist, it was ended by capital punishment through means of decapitation in a prison cell under Herod Agrippa, whose wife Herodias wasn't too keen on John the, prophet, John the Baptist's message that she was an adulterous woman. John's focus, the writers, on John the Baptist's life and ministry is that John the Baptist serves to build a watertight, verse 7, testimony to the divine sonship and messianic work of Jesus of Nazareth. That's his biography. He's sent from God. His name is John. The Bible tells us a lot about him. I've just given you a smattering. That leads us to number two. Not just the man God sent, but number two, the message he proclaimed. This is verse 7. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. The word witness and testify are the same Greek word. It occurs again in verse 8. Same Greek word. The word witness is the noun form. The word testify is the verb form, but it's the same word. John is using the, using the repetition in order to get our attention. He came as a martyrion in order to martyrese. He came to martyr by martyring. That's the word witness. The point is being made by the writer John that the life and ministry of the baptizer John is is presented in his gospel as a testimony that demands a verdict. I don't know what you feel like right now, but I'm pleased to report to you that you've all been called in for jury duty today and there's no escape. John's gospel is his effort to march himself in to our midst in his three-piece lawyer suit, got his briefcase, his paralegals behind him, she's pushing the carts, got all the boxes of evidence he's about to thumb through and present his case. As you sit in the jury box this morning and the deliberations of the trial unfold called the gospel according to John, how do you respond? to the preponderance of the weight of the evidence that John the Baptist is about to present concerning Christ. When it's all said and done, this word testimony, this word witness, demands a verdict. God's Word always draws a line in the sand, as was prayed earlier, whether you and I presume to respond or not. No response is a response. When John the writer calls his first witness to the stand, 
He summons the same man that every other gospel writer calls to the stand out of the gate, John the Baptist. Many have pointed out that John's gospel is arranged around clusters of sevens. The most popular or, or well-known or most talked about clusters, I, I suppose, in John's gospel are the seven signs and the seven I am statements. You know these. The seven signs of Jesus, the miraculous, changing water to wine in chapter 2, healing an official son in chapter 4, healing a man who had been lame for 38 years in chapter 5, number 4, feeding the 5,000 in chapter 6, walking on the water, healing the blind man, and raising Lazarus from the dead. Those are the seven signs. Some include an eighth sign, the cleansing of the temple in chapter 2. That's the signs. The seven I am statements, which is another very common way for people to see the structure of the Gospel of John, and rightfully so. Jesus is the bread of life, light of the world, door of the sheep, good shepherd, resurrection and life, way the truth and the life and the true vine. Those are the seven I am's of Jesus. They're actually, I believe, 19 I am's if you just take the ego I me, I am statements of Jesus in John's Gospel. So the seven signs and the seven I am statements are, I think, well-trodden territory. But one I'm less familiar with and certainly haven't heard many talk about are the seven witnesses in the Gospel of John. John the Baptist is the first one. And these witnesses are, again, a courtroom proceeding. But you're not in the jury box. You're on trial. And all the evidence is getting stacked up. One, two, three, up to seven. And a verdict is going to be rendered at the end of this gospel, and God's going to smash the gavel, and you can't change the evidence. The first witness, John the Baptist, all witnesses together individually and cumulatively are saying the same thing, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you will have life in His name. Leon Morris in his commentary pointed out about these seven witnesses. It is, quote, one of the key concepts of John's Gospel. And while we know John the Baptist, Morris says, it is perhaps significant that in John's Gospel there is no mention of him baptizing Jesus. We don't call him John the Baptist because of what John the writer tells us. We call him John the Baptist because of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us. So Morris says it is perhaps significant that in John's gospel there's no mention of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus, quote, but there is repeated reference to his witness. So John the Baptist is on the stand, and you're on trial. And he doesn't just speak in these verses. He speaks in 17, 18, 115, 19, 32, 34, 326, 328, and 533. And he says the same thing every time. For John, the writer, John the Baptist, witness is what matters, which is why our second point is the message that he proclaimed. The seven witnesses in John's Gospel that are coming for your heart under inspiration of the Holy Spirit are John the Baptist, the Samaritan woman, the works of Jesus, God the Father, the Old Testament, the nations, and the Holy Spirit along with the Spirit-filled apostles. D.A. Carson said of these seven witnesses, they all bear witness to Jesus, who himself, in chapter 18, bears witness to the truth in conjunction with the Father, chapter 8. So now you know 
John's about to line up witnesses to testify, that's his word in verse 7, that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited light. And the Holy Spirit inspired John the writer that way because the Holy Spirit demands a verdict concerning every human being. The Old Testament declared that any debated facts that are of consequence, like let's just say you're accused of murder, that would be kind of consequential. Wouldn't you want a, a fair, honest trial? Well, God says in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, that those kind of facts have to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 18 concerning cases of church discipline. And it's not surprising, therefore, that at the end of the age, Revelation 11, God will raise up two witnesses. The facts have to be confirmed. What do you think God might think about a consequence, how consequential a matter is, if He gives you seven witnesses who all say the same thing? My guess is, if you disagree with them, you lose the court battle. The Holy Spirit inspired John, the writer, this way because the Holy Spirit demands a verdict about your heart. Though the Holy Spirit gives us, through John the writer, seven plus witnesses, so many people shrug them off and walk away as if it's either irrelevant or absurd. So I started by asking you this question. If God created and sustained and trained for an entire lifetime into adulthood a man whom He then sent to you in order to tell you the light is on in the room, would you suppose that God had made a colossal waste of that investment of time and effort to deliver to you such an obvious message that you could have figured out on your own? Well, God did do that. And I want you to think about His message. His witness. His testimony. When John the Baptist gets up into the testimony box and he is cross-examined by John the writer, and you're sitting on trial, John the Baptist is constantly saying, the light is on. The light is on. And everybody who's on trial is saying, what light? Why did God send somebody as a forerunner to the light? You would all know if we turned the lights off right now. Why did God send somebody to tell everybody the light is on? Wouldn't that be obvious to everybody? No! It's not obvious to anybody. You're not good at seeing the light. In fact, you are altogether incapable. Somebody has to tell you that the light is on. And John the Baptist later himself sent a message when he was in prison to Jesus' disciples to confirm all over again, 
to himself that Jesus is the light. He said through his disciples, John the Baptist, to Jesus, are you the expected one or do we need to look for somebody else? Luke 7, 20. John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the light. He knew that Jesus was the expected one. And when he got word back that Jesus cited the Old Testament to ratify all over again that he is indeed the expected one, he is the light of the world, John was reassured about what he knew was true. That's why, parenthetical phrase, you and I absolutely need to put ourselves under biblical gospel preaching on the regular. Because if John the Baptist was tempted to wonder so much so that he needed reaffirmation from Jesus about who Jesus was? Who do we think we are? You're going to be tempted to wonder some dangerous stuff about Jesus if you drift long from hearing what Romans refers to as the word concerning Christ. Faith comes by hearing the testimony concerning Jesus. And John the Baptist needed that. Who do we think we are to go weeks and months and years without cracking our Bible and submitting our souls to gospel Biblical preaching. So when John the Baptist came to testify about the light, what did that testimony sound like? I'm so glad you asked. John's matarese, his witness, his testimony, sounded like this. You ready? You're in the wilderness of Judea right now. You're standing on the bank of the Jordan River It's hot as snot, and there's a man with his hair on fire preaching to you. And this is what he's saying. Repent for the forgiveness of your sins. Mark 1. He looks a little strange, as was noted earlier. He's wearing a garment of camel's hair. It's fastened about him with a leather belt. And he just finished his breakfast of locusts and wild honey but you can hardly see him because we're told that folks from the whole region of Judea came out to see him, not only the city of Jerusalem. And in Matthew chapter 3, when they got there, the Pharisees and Sadducees showed up. They weren't wearing camel's hair. They were wearing their long robes. They had their phylacteries. They were all decked out. They had their hoods and everything else to go along with it. And in Matthew chapter 3, when they showed up, John the Baptist really got to preaching. He said to them, to their face, You're a brood of vipers. The axe of God's judgment is laid at the root of your life. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance or, quote, you will be thrown into the fire. That's eyeball to eyeball. That's not behind anybody's back. That's his testimony. That's just Mark and Matthew. John tells us, the writer that John the Baptist preached an incomprehensibly transcendent Jesus. He is higher than me. That John the Baptist preached an eternal Jesus, for he existed before me, and one of infinite worth and value as the greatest treasure in the universe whose sandals John the Baptist said he wasn't worthy to stoop down and untie. When John the Baptist really got fired up in his sermon, he started saying in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He identified Jesus of Nazareth 
as uniquely anointed by the Holy Spirit saying that he saw with his own eyes the Spirit descend on that man like a dove. And in verse 34 of John chapter 1, he explicitly announced to everybody within earshot that Jesus of Nazareth is, quote, the Son of God. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist referred to himself as a groomsman, an altar boy, an usher. He's not the guest at the wedding that everybody's attention is directed toward. He's in center stage. He's the Prince of Glory, John 3, 27-29. And John the Baptist unashamedly laid his entire life on the altar of the Lordship of Jesus, asserting about his younger cousin, he must increase, I must decrease. In John 3.31, John the Baptist preached that Jesus is exalted above everyone and everything and has been given the Holy Spirit not with a little smidge, but in immeasurable proportion. And in John 1.34, John the Baptist teaches that Jesus knew that Jesus was infinitely loved by the Father. John the Baptist unabashedly laid down that Jesus of Nazareth is the dividing line for all men. A lot of talk in our day about all kind of ideologies and theories and how humanity is to be subdivided. I love you enough to tell you, God made every last one of you from one man. There's one race. But John's interested in dividing humanity. So the intersectionality, if you will, of the Bible according to John the Baptist, is John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There are two types of people. It's not old and young, male, female, rich, poor, black, white. It's wrath on you or wrath removed from you. And I promise you, a billion years from now, that will be the most important thing to you. Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist's sermon was on the magnificence of Jesus. Accentuating the fact, according to John the Baptist, that He is almighty. That He is holy. That He is the dispenser of all God's blessings and judgment. Instead of baptizing that man, does it now make sense? Maybe a little bit more? Well, John the Baptist wanted to be baptized by him. But to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus went down into the waters that were a parable of why he came. Jesus didn't need to be baptized for the same reason we do. He went into the waters in which we are baptized as a symbol that he was taking all the filth that was proverbially washed off of us and parabolically put on him. And he took the nastiness of our filth from his baptismal waters to the cross of Christ so that he could cleanse us from our guilt before God. As we mentioned earlier, John the Baptist was eventually beheaded for preaching such a message. But he didn't care who stood in front of him. Small or great people out in the wilderness or the king sitting on the throne who had the powers of execution. He didn't care. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
totally level at the foot of the cross. There are no impressive people. Jesus alone is the plumb line of all humanity. Why did he preach such a message? So that, verse 7, you want a purpose statement? So that all might believe through him. What a gift. What a gift that God Almighty puts such people on planet earth who have a concern not only for their own eternal welfare, but for that also of their fellow man. What a gift that God puts people like this on earth. You've all heard the illustration of the man throwing the starfish back into the ocean after the big storm blew hundreds of thousands of them up onto the beach, and there he goes just walking his way, picking one up and throwing it, picking one up and throwing it, but there's hundreds of thousands of starfish, and he can't save them all. So somebody says, what are you doing wasting your time? You're never going to be able to save them all. And you've heard the illustration the man said, but I saved that one and that one. Oh, how my heart breaks for Uptown Memphis to be the hardest place on planet Earth from which anybody can get to hell. Who's going to plant a flag in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your living room? Who's going to plant a flag in your spheres of influence like C.T. Studd tried to plant with his little life? Stud said famously, some wish to live within the sound of church and chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That's why Grace Church is in Memphis, by the way. This isn't creature comfort or social clubs. We're here to plant a flag in Memphis, Tennessee, so help us God, that reads on one side, Jesus Christ is Lord, and on the other side, whosoever will may come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Glorifying God, treasuring Jesus Christ, and spreading His eternal joy. That's the purpose of our lives. Which leads to our third and final point. The Messiah you need. Verse 8. John the Baptist was not the light. But he came to testify about the light. How many times does John the writer have to tell us that? He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. That's a negative positive. It's the same verb again. Matarese, testify. I've done my best to summarize for you the content of the message John the Baptist preached until his dying day. I regard John the Baptist as one of the most Christ-exalting preachers who's ever walked the planet. I'm not trying to rank the best preachers of human history. We've got a lot of that nonsense going on in celebrityism today. It, the Bible knows nothing of that. Competitive. My, I, I, God never speaks to me unless I hear it through the voice of my favorite preacher. That's, that's so anti-biblical. I'm just going to stop myself from saying anything else about it. John the Baptist has got to be, not in that competitive nonsense, one of the most Christ-exalting preachers who's ever stepped foot on planet Earth. Do you know where he learned that message? That I just tried to summarize to you? Do you know where it seeped from his mind to his heart and saturated his entire soul? 
to embrace and proclaim Jesus like he did? Do you know where John the Baptist tucked away and meditated and prayed to be able to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ like he did? I'll tell you where. And if you don't put your life under this same fountain, you'll never be impressed by him. The Bible. There's no secrets to the Christian life. Prayer, word, and God's people. Those are the most essential needs of your life. More than water, more than food. More than your next breath, you need prayer, you need God's Word, and you need God's people. You need those three things. Your life depends on it. John the Baptist immersed himself under the waterfall of God's Word with a Christocentric lens and a heart full of prayer. I'm going to tell you how I see that as I close here in just a second. But I'm going to give you Samuel Rutherford's illustration all over again for about the 50th time in the last 13 years. Rutherford, the preacher in the Highlands of Scotland, said that he finally figured out why preaching was so difficult. He said all week long in his preparation, he felt like he walked a thousand miles to the ocean. He got there and saw the grandeur of the beach and the birds and the waves and the sun and blah, 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 blah. And he would dip his hands down, proverbially speaking, into that ocean of beauty. And he would march back a thousand miles over all the mountains and valleys and get to his congregation on Sunday and stand in the pulpit and hold his hands up and say, can't you see the waves? Don't you see the sunset? Can't you feel the breeze? Why are you not impressed? And then Rutherford's illustration to kind of summarize it says, I finally get it. Unless you go to the ocean for yourself, your breath will never be taken away. John the Baptist went to that ocean. He lived at that ocean. All the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which was read for us at the beginning of this service. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 is about John the Baptist. You see, John the Baptist knew the, the writers of the Gospels tell us he knew that verse was about him and he had read it many times to make sure he understood his marching orders from heaven. And there's no doubt that he just kept reading the verses that came after it. And since it may be some time since you read the verses that follow, allow me to refresh your memory of what John the Baptist would have understood about his calling and then I'll tell you how he understood the content of his message. Let every valley be lifted up. Let every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. And then he said, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of a field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the Word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up. This is what John the Baptist would have read and said, okay, there's my job description. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, 
with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. John the Baptist read that and said, I want to do that with my life more than I want to do anything else. Whether it's long or short, whether I live to be a hundred or they kill me tomorrow, oh God, make me faithful to that assignment. I'm saying he got his message about his Messiah from the Bible. But if Isaiah chapter 40 verses 3 and following are about John the Baptist, who prepared the way for the Lord, who we know is Jesus, then maybe the verses that follow are about the Jesus for whom John prepared the way. If this doesn't take your breath away, thinking about Jesus Christ, nothing I could ever say will. Do you want to know who Jesus is according to John 40? Uh, Isaiah 40, forgive me. This is what John the Baptist would have read. This is why he preached such a Christ-exalting message. He's exalted above me. He's transcendently incomprehensible. He's so worthy I can't even untie the thong of his sandals. He's almighty in power. He's endowed with the fullness of the Holy Spirit immeasurably. Do you want, you want to know why John preached that way? He read these verses. Jesus has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by a span and calculated the dust of the earth by a measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales. Jesus directs the Spirit of the Lord. Nobody is His counselor or informs Him. Jesus consulted with nobody. Nobody ever gave Jesus understanding. Nobody taught Him the path of justice and knowledge or informed Him of the way of understanding All the nations are before Jesus like a drop from a bucket and regarded as a speck of dust on the scale. Jesus lifts up the islands like fine dust. Lebanon is not enough to burn for Him. Its beasts are not enough for a burnt offering. You can't make any sacrifice for Jesus that He needs. All the nations are as nothing before Jesus. They're regarded by Christ as less than nothing and meaningless. meaningless. To whom then will you then liken Him? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? As for the idol, a craftsman cast it. A goldsmith plates it with gold. A silversmith fashions chains of silver. But if you're too poor for that kind of idolatry, you just cut down a tree. You seek out a skillful craftsman. They carve you a little idol that won't totter. Do you not know? John the Baptist, can you imagine him reading this? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Jesus sits above the circle of the earth. Before him, all its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Jesus reduces rulers of the world to nothing. He makes judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, sown, and their stock taken root in the earth. Jesus merely blows on them, and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken Jesus? That He would be an equal to that man, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. See that Jesus has created these stars. 
He leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of the might of the Lord Jesus and because of His power. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob? Why do you assert, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. And the justice that's due me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator, Jesus never becomes weary, never becomes tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and vigorous men stumble badly, those who wait for Jesus will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not get weary. That's why John the Baptist preached such an exalted view of Jesus. Verse 3 of Isaiah 40 about John the Baptist. The rest of it about the one whose way he came to prepare. So I'm closing here. Do you believe this message? I mean, verse 7 tells us that John preached this way so that people would believe. So if you get all this other stuff and you don't got that, you got nothing. Do you believe this message? We're told in John 10, 41 that a lot, a lot, a lot of people believed. Many came to Him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Isn't that awesome? A lot of people said, John the Baptist, you look funny, you sound funny, I don't understand a lot of it, but I know this much. Everything you've ever said about Jesus is true. John 10 41 can you say that you have come to a place in your life where you are absolutely convinced of that statement for yourself right here right now John the Baptist is saying though he's dead still speaking repent and believe last thing I'll say is that God uses people to point people to the only savior of people I think we'd be remiss if we didn't say God brought us just a man of clay feet like you and I, John the Baptist, to tell us about the Redeemer that we may believe in the light. Verse 7. Of all Jesus' disciples, there may be more, but at least two of them heard about Jesus for the first time from John the Baptist. Andrew and Peter. God uses people to tell people about the Savior of people. John the Baptist told Andrew and Peter about Jesus. John 1.35, the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and said to those following him, What do you seek? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? Jesus said, Come, and you will see. They said, Uh, They came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him for that day. It was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John the Baptist speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother, Simon, and said, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He, Andrew, brought him, Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter and said, You are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, Rocky, which is translated Peter. John the Baptist was happy 
when his disciples left him to follow Jesus. God uses people to tell people about the Savior of people. Who are you telling about the Savior of people? John wasn't the light, but Jesus did say about John in John 5.35, Jesus said about John the Baptist, he's a lamp that burns and shines. God is calling you to be a witness to testify about Jesus too. You're not in charge of the results. That's God's business. You're the mailman. You deliver the news, the announcement of the good news of the gospel. God is calling you, just like He set apart John the Baptist, if you are in Christ, to be a witness to Christ. You're commanded, along with your local church, to make disciples of all the nations. And once they come to Christ, to cluster them up in churches where they observe the ordinances, baptism, and saturate themselves in gospel-centered biblical preaching, observe all the commands Jesus gave. Just like The apostles stood on that hillside when Jesus ascended right before He left. Jesus is saying to us right here, right now, you will be my witnesses in your Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. If you're in Christ, God wasn't finished when He got to you. You're supposed to be like John, a lamp that burns and shines. Let your light so shine before men. See your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. All Christians are called to represent Jesus faithfully. So I believe the response today is either get saved or let's get going again with our gospel witness. I wonder who God's going to save today, right here, right now. And I wonder who God's going to save tomorrow because you call that friend you've been praying for for so long. Or you go visit that family member that you've been burdened for for so long. Or you strike up that conversation again or invite that coworker to go to coffee with you sometime this week. And you crack open your Bible and with a broken heart, you give them the good news. Wouldn't it be glorious? if we could just keep that little casket out here every Sunday? Because God's constantly saving people. I'm talking about our little portable baptistry. looks like a coffin. I love that thing. Wouldn't it be great if we just kept that coffin out here every Sunday? Because God's saving people so often. Well, may the Lord do it. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the message of John the Baptist and for the way You used him to be a light that burns and shines. And we agree with Him that we want with Him to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Cause us to be so full of Your Holy Spirit that it's difficult to discern, though He had a special calling and we understand that, but it's difficult to discern a fundamental difference between John the Baptist and us. We ask this for Your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.